the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Our special guest, Jim Carolla, is a certified psychologist, jazz musician, and also the father of a past guest of ours, Adam Carolla. He's also the host of the podcast, Life Lessons with Jim Carolla. Mr. Carolla, I'm much obliged. Okay, yeah. My first question, who is the real Jim Carolla? Ah, that's a big one. I don't know. <laughs> I know of different parts of me and sometimes come to something that really feels more real. Not not a consistent anchor of something called somebody called the real Jim Carolla. Well take us back. What was life like growing up? I'm from a Sicilian background and then my father came here and from Sicily in about 1900, and with uh, brothers and sisters, and and they made a life in South Philadelphia, where it was kind of a um, a Sicilian family ghetto, you know, where paisans and everybody that came from Sicily uh, ended up in South Philadelphia. So I grew up like that in a kind of an immigrant, first-generation family, quite, I would say poor, but, you know, just the way the early immigrants how they somehow uh, survive. So that's that's kind of how it all began. And what were your parents like? Let's see. My my father. Um, well, they both they both spoke English. So that growing up, so I got a chance to get a, a mixture of uh, Italian and um, English. But so so communication was, was a lot of my. Relatives uh, didn't speak English. People first coming over it took them a long time, but uh, my father picked it up quite quickly. My father was a musician. He was a trombone player, and what I remember mostly about him in life is um, his constantly working on the trombone, studying it, encouraging me. Uh, that's how I got introduced to the trumpet. My mother was very hard. She really was. Uh, my father didn't really earn enough of a living to support the family. My mother worked in the sweatshops, the tailor shop, very hard, very hard life. But she kept the family going because she could make a living. When we were three brothers, I am the youngest. I'm the only one left in the family. All my family's deceased. So that, that was kind of, I would say that hard times was in the house a lot, and uh, particularly during the early depression in the 1930s and through there. I was uh, was kind of a hard time, but somehow I'm really thankful to my mother, who was able to to keep to keep it going. So that might be a start there. So tell us about this this music that you heard. You said he played trombone. What did you grow up listening to? We didn't have a record in the house, so there or, or a, a record playing machine. Uh, so when I Anything I had to hear had to be really in a school. I went to a Bach vocational school where you had to learn a trade. But they did have a 
somewhat of a little bit of music department, very primitive. And children there were there to learn tailoring, to work in a tailor shop, automotive, car mechanics, learn a trade kind of thing. Now, music that I've heard, really the first exposure to me was to jazz. I mean, I would hear some of the concert band music, but not, not, we didn't really get into it, didn't even have my own uh, recording machine. But I got interested in jazz early. I really liked the sound of it. Chet Baker was my first, my first idol. I eventually got an album of his and listened to it all the time and really tried to copy his style. But as I got out more in, in the world with fellow musicians and started to play some jazz myself, and then I got introduced to Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie. And I once had the great uh, honor of playing on the same stage with Dizzy Gillespie, uh, his band, I was working, and I was in a band that was his backup band. He being one of the greatest trumpet players, it was a real honor for me. So I'm kind of just an adult. I want to just give a time in my 20s, and I'm trying to, to learn to play jazz. In those days, they didn't, they didn't have the con. Today you can get a degree in jazz at USC and Westchester State, and you can actually get a master's degree a doctor's degree in, in jazz. In those days, it wasn't that organized. You had to really listen to other players. Mostly, I uh, listened to black players who were really, at first, really playing jazz and ask them about how they do it, what they think of when they're playing, you know. Trying to, you, you learn from others at the beginning. So, I would say jazz, it wasn't much of a classical background. That came later. And I um, got on the, uh, my composer, uh, to my famous, what uh, I loved the most was Stravinsky and, uh, and the Russian style. Do you have a favorite record of all time? Of all time? That's a, that's a lot of time. What would I say it would be a favorite record? Well, maybe the one I started with since I'd learned so much from it. And that was Chet Baker. And, you know, I don't even know the title of it now. But I do have to give him a lot of credit because that's how I learned the beginning part of that. But after that, I Stan Getz, a tenor saxophone player, was a, a real idol of mine, and oh, many, many musicians. But mostly jazz, and particularly the bebop area is the, one, is the place I grew up in. What about the interest in psychology? When did that come into play? That came late. I was a musician on the road for a long time and realized I couldn't raise a family. And uh, it was a, be a musician. It's a difficult business to try to make any kind of a living. So I, I kind of picked a way of going to school. I would go for a while and go back and back and play again. And but but finally I got a um, I, I got a degree in, in uh, education. I um, I began to teach school, public schools, but I was also doing my, I went into therapy myself, psychotherapy. I feel like I, I felt like I could do it. I was one of the directors in a residential treatment center for emotionally disturbed children, and I worked with psychiatrists and so on, and they, uh, they said, you know, you're, 
you have a talent for this, you ought to go to school and get a license for it. That was way, I was like, by that time, I'm like close to, uh, I'm in my 40s somewhere. And I went to graduate school, graduate, graduate school, and I got my license, and I've been practicing. I don't know, it's about 25 years now, private practice, and in Sherman Oaks, California. When I interviewed your son, Adam Carolla, one of the things that I found out through research, I knew of a few things that he had done, but I had no idea the breadth, how many different projects he's worked on. Did you teach him a strong work ethic? No. <laughs> I, I didn't because I, didn't, I don't think I had one myself, particularly early times. Well, you know, his his grandfather, I mean, well, I can say, that, that I taught him the work. Maybe by example, he's, he saw that I went to school, and I would say that maybe I was working on myself and trying to get degrees and play. I would say that he saw that might have been an example. His, his grandfather was a hard worker, and his grandfather, I think, taught him because he's, he's very skillful with his hands and carpentry. And I think a lot of that has to do with his grandfather. Uh, so that might be a way to explain that. The name of your podcast is Life Lessons with Jim Carolla. How did you get the idea to do this show? Well, Adam had his little network and they had different kinds of, of people on it, you know, entertainment people and, and comedy. And I thought, maybe we could have a, a serious that would go for more serious depth about the meaning of life, what's purpose of life. So I just asked him, I said, you know, how about if I develop something to do with people really soul-searching and ask them themselves, who am I and, you know, what's, what's the purpose of my life, the meaning of my life? So he said, okay, you know, he said, try it. So I began that way and I... I did a lot of experimenting, and so I think I've had about 50 or 60 shows now. So it came about that way, me asking him for one of his networks to be a probing, uh, in-depth show with the idea of asking the question, what's the purpose of my life? Well, on that note, I have a couple of somewhat soul-searching kind of questions for you. How do you define a great life? great life. Well, I think for one to be and to work on himself, for the work of himself to, for a higher consciousness, I think, I don't know if I call it a great life, I would say that would be a purposeful life of working towards expanding, going towards a higher consciousness, of developing, trying to see the areas of life that are, that have been, um, or have taken the wrong road and to begin to repair the life where the repairs are needed. And working towards, I guess, the final, where it kind of be a spiritual life, a higher consciousness, a spiritual life, and that's what it would be the real purpose of life. Uh, that would be the greatest, I think, a, a human could obtain on this earth is to find his real spiritual birth. What do you find or what do you believe most people are missing in their life? Well, just that. Trying to find other ways of life, expand the egoistic part of life, power of personality. and That, to me, there's something really missing. 
So no matter how successful you are on that level, the part that's missing is that the spiritual life is the part that really needs to be obtained, this higher consciousness. So when that's missing, then all the ways we try to, to make up for it doesn't make up for it unless you could find a, a uh, spiritual path, either through traditions, Buddhas and Christianity and so on, so you can develop kind of a soul, soul develop. How important do you think positive thought is? Well, positive thought, I'm learning later in years that, um, for example, negative thought has a powerful, a powerful effect on the body. A negative thought affects the, the brain very much. I have something I call ANT, auto, automatic negative thinking. In fact, we're working on that now on the air. That we all, that we automatic negative, negative thinking. And that when we're in a negative state, it has a tremendous effect on the body, mind, produces moods, the difference between angry moods and, and so on, that the, the whole, the whole body's affected by that, the blood pressure, the, um, everything. So the importance of, of negative thinking is something we're working on right now on the show. Well, the world, it's like a lot of people not aware of now, what an impact negative thoughts have. Yeah, I listened to the first of those broadcasts on ANT, and I found that really, really interesting. I listened to that today, actually. Okay. I'm still doing that series. Do you know what, which one you listened to? I listened to the very first one. It oh. sounded like it was the first of two parts where you went over, like, the various internal languages that people use, like, or external when they say things like, you never call me. Or, I always am late, that kind of thing. I thought it was very interesting. And I think it's something most people are guilty of. Right, now, we all are. We're just not aware of the effect of particularly negative thinking. And and the opposite. Positive, you know, enlightens the body. Light relaxes the body. The negative tends to tense up the body. The world is something that's always changing. It always will change as long as we're here. When you look at the young people today, there's so much emphasis on the cell phones and the computers and email. What advice would you give to young people? Yeah, that's a tough one. The young people are really into all the the technologies. And to me, that's part of also groping for something, you know, the intimacy of all that material, and, uh, of all those text phoning, text, of um, making a contact just through electronic things. They've lost some of the capacity of, of the one-to-one intimacy. Uh, the electronic world seems to be, we're all, you know, in this passive entertainment and looking at it as a real passivity to it. I, I would say, really to begin to really ask that question in your life, what's the purpose of my life? And to not to rely, I'm not saying we shouldn't use this technological material, but to more pursue the meaning of my life, have some, and be connected with a community or other people that are really asking that question. That's, that's what I think the real goal of life is. I would say that. What is the best thing about being Jim Carolla? 
Well, one thing is that my love for music has been, to me, a real wonderful creative thing. The other thing is, I think the creative part of me, I feel therapies, and being a therapist is a very creative, very creative within the session in that office. But I say that when people come to do the work, that that office is like a first-timer place where you may come to things, you may have insights and ideas for the first time in your life through the work you would do with it, for example. And that um, my best part is I, I work with that very creatively, and I learn a lot about myself. So between music and the creativity of a psychotherapy will be the best thing I, I do. My last question. For anyone who's listening to our interview, whether they're listening to it on the radio or they're listening to it online, wherever, what would you like to say to all the people who are listening in? That your life is very important to the little time we have on this earth and to make the best use of it by asking that question, what's the real purpose of, of my life? And, and to pursue it however you can give that answer if you need if you need to have psychotherapy, you need to do that. Whatever it would be that could help me with that question, that I need to pursue that and, and see and see things that I'm doing that are that are not going in that direction, and and to begin to so really an examined life, whatever that would be for each person. And psychotherapy could be my. It's not just used for pathology. Could be used for a real search, a psychic search, so that you have the freedom of not being caught in a false self, emotional bodies, different things, different way people call that, and you have the freedom then to pursue the path of real purposefulness. Well spoken. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much for doing this interview, Mr. Corolla. Okay, well, thank you for asking me. All right, well, you have a good one. You too. Goodbye.